as the Wigglers head out, um, we are still in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, and we are going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And if you remember what's going on here, it's the last week of Jesus' life, and he is teaching in the temple, and he is going through a series of parables uh, with his audience, and this is the third one in a series of three. And it's worth thinking about who he's talking to again. Um, in the audience, of course, are the Jewish masses. They've all gathered for Passover week, and um, they are listening to the master storyteller at work, listening to Jesus and what he's got to say, and just really enjoying his teaching. And uh, the masses probably didn't get what Jesus was saying in his parables. He didn't realize there was kind of an underlying meaning to everything. Um, so uh, they were kind of just enjoying the story that was going along. Now, the disciples were also there in the audience. And as we know, know from studying the rest of the Gospels, oftentimes they didn't get the parables either, right? Sometimes they needed Jesus to explain it to them. And so we don't know with this parable whether Jesus ever got around to explaining it to them or not. Um, but maybe it was only after Jesus had died, after he rose again, after he ascended into heaven, and after the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, maybe only then did the disciples understand what this parable was all about. But uh, there was another group in the audience, and that was the Jewish leaders and more than anybody else listening, the Jewish leaders got the parables. They understood um, the parables that Jesus was saying in, the, in this series of three. One of the verses last week, Matthew chapter 21, verse 45 says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So, Jewish leaders are understanding what's going on here, and they know that Jesus is um, poking at them, um, getting under their skin. I was thinking about the genre of parable. Uh, we don't really use parables or see parables used in our everyday life. I think there's maybe uh, some business books out there kind of written as a parable, but we don't normally use parable. I was thinking of a different genre, um, satire. Um, have any of you heard of the Babylon Bee? I don't know. Raise the hand if you've heard of the Babylon Bee. It's a satire website, and it's actually a Christian website. And it's, uh, some of you maybe have heard The Onion before. Um, that's a non-Christian satire website. But the Babylon Bee is actually the most popular web uh, satire website out there right now, and it's run by Christians. And satire, uh, they do these headlines and news stories that are totally made up. And so back in the day, I don't know, 10 years ago, you get these emails from people. Did you guys see this story? And it would be something from the Onion or the Babylon Bee, and then you'd have to go on to Snopes and see if it was true or if it was just a made-up fictional story. And so um, these stories that, that are right there on the Internet, they're putting them out daily, they're fictional they're outrageous stories, and yet what makes them funny is that there's some, uh, 
kernel of truth in there that they're getting at, that you look at it and you say, okay, our world is a crazy place. Maybe this is true. Is this really true? I can see how it could be true given everything that's going on. And so think of that a little bit when you think of these parables. It's a fictional story. Jesus is using objects and experiences from everyday life to communicate. They're, um, they're outrageous in some ways. These stories are outrageous. This one is outrageous, and we'll see that as, as we go along. And yet there's truth in it. Jesus is communicating a truth. So we'll see that as we go. Now, as we go through this parable, think about yourself and where you fit into this parable, which character or group of characters uh, represent you. And let me make a warning before we get in here as well. Parables, they say, shouldn't dig into the details too much on the parables because they're really trying to make one broad point. There's one overarching point that a parable is trying to communicate. And so, that always that never sits well with me because I'm a detail-oriented person, and uh, as an accountant, you have to be uh, in the details of things. And so uh, I'm going to take a little liberty here because um, as we'll get into this, you'll see that Jesus uses the word compared in this parable. So I'm going to be doing some comparing, and uh, maybe I go a little too far, uh, but we'll see that as it goes on, and if you want to ignore all the details when it's all said and done and just uh, try to capture the broad point, that's fine with me. So let's jump right in, and we'll read the first seven verses of Matthew chapter 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them, The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So, um, remember again, like I just said, um, we have a master storyteller here. Jesus is uh, just a master at this, and and we know how well we respond to stories. Somehow that's the best, uh, one of the best ways that we can learn that really grabs our attention. And he really does this here. But his target is the Pharisees, is the, the chief priests and the elders, the Jewish leaders. Um, that's, he's being very targeted at them, uh, even if he's just talking with all the people that are there. So keep that in mind. So let's talk about the story itself a little bit. We have a king, and there is a wedding feast for his son. And... Uh, the king is very excited about this, and he, so he sends out invitations. And in fact, in these verses, there are, um, the, just the ones we read, there's almost three waves of invitations. You've got the invitations themselves that have gone out, and then you've got the servants that go out that say, hey, you know, you guys got this invitation, you're coming, right? And then you've got another wave of servants that come out and say, okay, the feast is ready to begin. It's time to come. So you really got uh, the king 
uh, broadly inviting, over and over inviting the people to come. It's a tremendous uh, opportunity for the people. They're, they're given every opportunity to come to the wedding feast. And so uh, the people get a chance to respond. They get the choice to respond. They have the freedom to respond how they want. And the first set of people give some pretty lame excuses about why they're not going to come. They say, uh, oh, I've got to go to my farm, and I've got to do some work there. Or I've got to go to my place of business. I've got uh, some books to balance. I've got things to do. I've got a couple things to ship to my customers. You know, they give some lame excuses about not going to the wedding feast of the king. And that, the parallel today, I was thinking about this a little bit. Imagine that you and I got invited to attend a royal wedding. We were invited by Queen Elizabeth herself. And she has given us an all-expenses-paid trip to go to England. She's paying for our flights. We're going to get to uh, stay in Buckingham Palace and we're going to get to attend the royal wedding and the feast afterward, and we're going to get some quality time, quality face time with Queen Elizabeth. Now, she's not even our queen, right? But how many of us would turn down an invitation like that and say, no, I can't do that. Sorry, queen. I've got to go to the grocery store. Uh, there's a couple weeds popping up in my backyard. You know, there's there's things i got to do, you know, so... You know, forget it, Queen. I, you know, I'm, I'm busy. I can't do it. That's ridiculous, of course, right? And and that's what this story is trying to convey: is how ridiculous it would be to turn down an invitation from the king. And the audience that's hearing this, um, even if they're only getting it at the story level, they're getting how ridiculous this is to refuse the king. What? stupidity to refuse this invitation. And then there's another group, the second group, the invitation goes to them, and not only do they say no, but they actually abuse and kill the servants that were sent. Now this is idiocy. This is really, really stupid. They are attacking the servants of the king. Now the king has the whole power of the empire behind him. He's in control of the army, the police, the military, everything. He's the one that's the sovereign in control. And these people are going to kill his servants? That is just nuts. And again, the audience is understanding this. You do not do that. And so the king responds, and he kills um, these wicked uh, people who have refused his invitation and killed his servants, and he destroys their city. And the audience isn't saying, oh, king, how could you do that? They're saying, heck yeah, that's the right thing. You do not disrespect the king. You do not dishonor his servants. You do not kill his servants. The audience is saying, absolutely, that's what you do. The king is right on here. So that's the story. So let me just make some comparisons here. Let me say, let me try to equate this a little bit to reality here. So um, 
the invitation time, so this window where people are being invited to come to the feast, this is the time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. And the king, obviously, is God the Father, and the son is Jesus Christ. And the wedding actually takes place uh, off-screen, off-site from this parable. It's the feast that these people are attended, um, invited to, but the wedding is off-site. Um, and that kind of represents um, Jesus' wedding with his bride, the church. Okay, so that happens off-camera, so to speak. And then we've got uh, those who are invited with that first wave, the people that ignored the servants, those represent the, the Jewish population as a whole. And then the people that treated the um, servants shamefully and killed them, those are the Jewish leaders. That's the target of who Jesus is speaking to. And then the servants, the first wave of ser servants, represents John the Baptist and the disciples as they're proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. Remember, this parable is about the kingdom of heaven. And then the second wave represents um, the apostles and the church leaders after um, Jesus had died and was resurrected and ascended and the Holy Spirit was given. Um, and so you think about uh, how those, the apostles and those early church leaders were treated. You think about Stephen, how he was martyred. You think about the apostle James, who was martyred. You think about... Um, the rest of the apostles, after the canon of the New Testament was closed, we know from church history that I think, what, 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred. Um, so that that's those servants uh, killing the messengers. And then the city that's destroyed and burned by the king, well, that is, seems like it's Jerusalem in AD 70. That was destroyed. And God uses the Roman army to do that. Now, the feast itself... Um, represents the uh, millennial kingdom here on earth, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ here on earth. So the wedding takes place in heaven. The feast takes place on the earth. And you can imagine if the king is God the Father, you can imagine um, the quality of the feast, right? quality of the feast is dependent on the wealth of the king. And in this case, the king is the god of the universe. So you can imagine how lavish uh, this wedding feast will be. Now, some commentators say the wedding feast is going to be the whole millennial kingdom, a thousand-year-long feast, celebration of this wedding. Uh, others say that that's just what's going to kick off the millennial kingdom will be the feast, but it's going to be uh, something amazing here. And um, I should mention as well, uh, as I was reading uh, about this parable from different commentators, they were saying this this parable is about the Holy Spirit. And I thought, well, I haven't read the Holy Spirit in this at all. But but this is about um, this is about the rejection of the Holy Spirit. It's the the pleading and the wooing and the drawing that the Holy Spirit does, and these people resisting the Holy Spirit. After Jesus had died, after he rose again, after the day of Pentecost, you know, all the evidence was there that Jesus was who he said he was, and yet the people still rejected. This shows 
um, the illogical nature of this whole thing. It's just illogical for them to reject an invitation of the king. And in my mind, it also shows that God can be resisted. The Holy Spirit can be resisted. Um, God gives us the choice of whether we are going to accept him or reject him, accept his son or reject his son, accept his spirit or reject it. Um, he has given us the freedom to resist him. Okay, let's go on to our second section here. This is uh, verses 8 through 10. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all, all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So um, the story itself, this is more invitations. More invitations go out, more servants are sent out. And um, the, the goal here that the king wants is he wants his wedding hall filled to capacity. So he sends out the invitations until the wedding hall is filled. Now, I should mention the theme of the parable at this point. This is the overarching theme. This is what you want to take away if you want to ignore all my other stuff, which is um, the good news of Jesus Christ went out to the Jews first. The Jewish people rejected it. The Jewish leaders rejected it. And so because of that, in these verses here, we see the gospel going out to the Gentiles. This is a different group of people, and it's going out to them. And this is where the church is formed in these verses here. So um, the message is that you are invited to the wedding feast. Now, it was interesting here in these verses, it says, um, it says in here, um, gather, they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So there's there's a couple comparisons here. There's there's bad and good, and there's worthy and not worthy. Now I would think, normally speaking, you've got the good who are worthy, and the bad who aren't worthy. That seems natural to me. That that's what you um, when you make a comparison of those words, that's what you get. But in this case, the good and the bad and the worthy and the not worthy, they're two different groups. Anyone and everyone is invited, both bad and good. It's what you do with the invitation that makes you worthy or not worthy. Um, it's what you do with Jesus Christ that makes you worthy or not worthy. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God the Father sees your sees his worthiness when he looks at you. So notice here, both bad and good are invited. There will be both bad and good that accept, but the people that do accept are the worthy ones because of Jesus Christ. So let me make a few applications here and just ask you some questions of, about what we've seen so far. Are you distracted from the servants that God is sending out to you to invite you? Are you distracted with the mundane cares of everyday life? Are you too busy on Facebook and Twitter to recognize 
that you have an invitation from the king of the universe to attend his feast? Are you ignoring his call, the call of heaven, the call to be with him, the call to be with his son? Are you ignoring that? Are you actively resisting the king's servant? Are you not only ignoring it, but you're fighting back against those people and you're saying, I don't want this. I resist this. Um, I'm going to attack this and fight against this. Maybe there's some of you here that are dragged here by your family or circumstance or your parents or whatever, and, and you are actively resisting the message of Jesus Christ. Thinking about that if you're one of those people. And uh, are you rejecting that invitation? Are you um, turning away from that and saying, that is not for me? Are you maybe saying, yes, that is for me. Um, I think I believe that. I want to accept that. I want Jesus in my life, but I'm not ready for that now. Give me some time. Give me a chance to get my life all settled. Give me a chance to get everything in order, and then I'll accept the invitation for, for the king. But remember, the king is filling up his wedding hall, and at some point, that wedding hall is going to be filled, and you don't want to be left on the outside of that. So today is the day of salvation if you have been in this wait-and-see mode with the king. And then for those of us who have accepted the invitation to attend the wedding feast, are we now turning around and becoming servants ourselves and taking the message out there, even knowing that most people are going to reject it, resist it, fight against it? Are we still willing to take the message of the gospel out there? Okay, let's get to our final verses here. Uh, last four verses here. Uh, verse... But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So we've been talking about different groups of people so far, the Jews, the gospel going out to the Jews, uh, the Jewish leaders hearing it, um, the Gentiles hearing it. Well, now we get into a very personal situation with this one man. And he has come into the wedding without, uh, into the wedding feast without a wedding garment. And in those days, and even in our day, right, when we get invited to a wedding, we need to be dressed appropriately for that wedding. We need to have clean clothes on, and our attire needs to match uh, the circumstance of that wedding. Think about if we went to a royal wedding uh, that the queen invited to us, us to for their, her grandkids or something. You would probably go out and buy a new wardrobe and be prepared for that wedding. And in this case, this person has come into the wedding with severe disrespect for the king. He is not dressed appropriately. And so the king calls him friend, and then he says, what's the deal here? Why, where's your wedding garment? Why don't you have a wedding garment on? And the man gives the response that fits the situation. When you are standing face to face with the king, and he asks you a direct question, only at you, 
you better well tell the truth. You can't lie to the king. You can't make any excuses to the king. And so this guy does the only thing he can do, which is he keeps his mouth shut. And so we see somehow, I don't exactly know when this parable ends because this, you know, it's a wedding feast and he gets, not only does he get kicked out of the feast, but he kicks, gets kicked out to outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, that seems like hard reality right there for this guy. Um, so maybe someone can tell me where the line in this story, kind of the fiction ends and the fact really starts, because this guy has met uh, a terrible demise here. So what's the symbolism um, of this wedding garment? Well, I believe the wedding garment represents the robe of righteousness, the robe of Christ's righteousness. Um, we will not be accepted into eternity without Christ's righteousness. There is no other alternative. It doesn't matter what our race is. It doesn't matter what our social status is. It doesn't matter whether we have been good or bad. It doesn't matter uh, how much we've given in our tithes and offerings on Sunday morning. That doesn't matter. It's about the robe of righteousness, the robe of Jesus Christ's righteousness. So um, I should mention again, coming back to this, the Pharisees are the target here of Jesus. And we see in the Apostle Paul a former Pharisee, and he talks about um, the difference, the before and after difference here. And so I want to read um, a few verses about the before and a few verses about the after. So let me just read um, three verses in Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 4 through 6. This is Paul expressing what he was before Jesus Christ. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's what Paul thought of himself before he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's roughly what these Pharisees would be thinking about themselves as well. When I stand before the God of the universe, he's going to look at me and say, I'm blameless, and I'm going to be able to enter into eternity. And then Paul goes on to say, that was me before, but this is me now. So verses 7 through 9 says, but whatever gain I had, these are well-known verses, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul's view of himself changed drastically after he encountered Jesus Christ. After that, he knew 
that his own righteousness as a Pharisee was not going to cut it before God. It was only going to be the righteousness of Jesus Christ that would see him into eternity. So, um, we all have a decision that we have to make, right? We can react to the plea of God, the plea of God that he sends with his servants, the plea of God through the Holy Spirit, the plea of God through his word, through his son. We can react in indifference and say, whatever, no thanks, I've got chores to do, I've got things that are keeping me entertained and busy, I'm, I'm not interested. We can be outright hostile to that message, or we can act in a way like these Pharisees were, to be self-righteous. I can get here on my own. I don't need any help from Jesus Christ. Um, God gives us the choice on what we want to do. And, but there is only one way to get to heaven. There is only one way. And we can either accept his way in Jesus Christ, or we can try a different way, a, a way that actually doesn't exist. He gives us the freedom to go that way. We can come to him on his terms, which aren't that demanding. Put on the robe of Jesus Christ. Accept my son, Jesus Christ. Or we can try to come to him on our own terms. And if we do come to him on our own terms, we are going to stand before God on judgment day, and he is going to scrutinize us, and he's going to see if we have the robe of Christ's righteousness on or not. And if he, and when he does that, he's going to say to us, friend, you don't have that robe. He's going to say, friend, why don't you have that wedding garment on? And what's our response going to be? We're going to be speechless. You're not going to have an answer to that. I should mention just the last verse where, where it says, many are called, but few are chosen. How should we take that? Well, I take it this way. I take it that many are invited. In fact, I think all are invited. The, I think the invitation from God goes out to everybody. All are invited. But few are chosen. What does that mean? Well, I take it that the chosen people are the ones who put on the robe of Jesus Christ, who put on the correct wedding garment. Those are the people that God says, that, that person can enter my wedding feast. They have the garment of Christ on. That person can enter. Those are the people that God chooses. And remember again that the, the time is short. The wedding hall is waiting to be filled. <clears throat> and once that hall is filled, he's built it certain dimensions. Once that hall is filled, the time for choosing will be over. And stuck with our faith. So let me just finish here with two application questions and just ask about your own status. Are you entering into eternity wearing the robe of righteousness and headed for God's feast for his son? Does that represent you? Or does this represent you? Alternatively, have you decided to spend forever weeping alone in outer darkness. That's the choice. That's the choice we face. It's a stark, clear choice, 
it seems obvious which one we should choose. But look at yourself today and ask yourself, have you made that choice for yourself? Like this individual had made that choice for himself, this Pharisee said, I can do it on my own. Look at yourself and see what choice you have made. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you again for our time this morning. Thank you for the chance to um, open up your word. Thank you for the chance now to sing praises to you and to your son. Lord, help us um, this week to be introspective, to look at our own uh, decisions. Have we decided to put on the garment that you have offered to, to us? Have we decided to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? Have we put on his robe of righteousness that you have so generously provided to us? Or, Lord, are we destined to spend eternity separated from you? Lord, help us to not wait too long. Help us to make this decision today. Help us to decide to follow Jesus. So, Lord, we just uh, want to commit this day this week into your care. Help, help us to go out into the world and be servants of you. If we already know you, help us to be servants that share this invitation with those who don't. In Jesus' name, amen.